If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah? We did too. My wife killed the turkey. She wasn't the one who killed it. I mean, she did a good job in the kitchen with the turkey. We're happy to be back here this evening and continue our series this year on Transform. How do we have a confident faith? Is Scripture sufficient? Because it is, how do we cultivate a biblical worldview and be ministers of reconciliation in this fallen, dark, evil, corrupt world? I want to give us a brief overview of our transition that happened a couple weeks ago and highlight bullet points um, that will allow for us to all be on the same page this evening and also lay again a, a pretty solid and strong foundation. So here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repeat after me. Are we ready? We're going to do some kindergarten repeating. All right, you ready? What I am about to hear... Coming from the Word of God, can and should radically change my life. I say that because I think that we can get into the habit of coming and hearing messages and singing songs and being in groups and hearing things that we know and understand and having this idea of... Um, it's just normal, right? And I think that sometimes that can cause us to not be aware constantly of the power of the gospel. But the power of the gospel means that each and every day we should be becoming more like Christ. We should find ourselves not more numb to the truth in all the gospel, but more alive and exuberant and joyful and full of praise and thanksgiving. In other words, you should be more excited about the gospel today than you were yesterday because you should be able to understand it more today. You should be more sanctified today. So all of these things as a combination should allow you, every time you're in the presence of God again, which it doesn't have to be in a service, right? You, you, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. But every time, especially you can come together with brothers and sisters, you ought to be really uh, excited and full of joy and this, this delight for God's Word, this awe of who He is and what He has done. And we've been talking about faith the last two weeks. Where does it come from and what do I do with it? And these are powerful truths, I, I believe, that we've been seeing from Paul's writings in Second Corinthians beginning with chapter 3 and 4 the last two weeks. So I want to remind us of what we've talked about the last two weeks and allow for us to really kind of once again look at these truths that we find in Scripture be overwhelmed by them, be stirred in our souls by them, be encouraged and challenged by them. Cool? Here's what we talked about the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, what is faith? Where does it come from? And we saw, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that faith does not come from the law. Law is a ministry of death. It kills. So faith is not a result of works. This took us right into it being the result of regeneration. Which means you've been born again, you've been given life, you've been brought from spiritual darkness, spiritual death, to spiritual life, or spiritual light. And regeneration is what produces the gift of faith, and it is indeed a gift, it is grace, undeserved. 
We must be born again. This is the work of God. Then we talked about faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And this faith coming from the word of God is both for our justification or our salvation being made right before God and our sanctification becoming more like Christ. In other words, we're born again when we hear the proclamation of the gospel from the word of God and the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts to see the glory of Christ. But our faith is also strengthened by abiding in the word of God as we're conformed to the image of Christ and continued to be sanctified or set apart or made like Christ. We talk about how faith is a beholding, right? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the beginning says that those who are unbelievers, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They are veiled to the truth of the gospel like the Israelites were veiled from the glory of Moses' face after he was with God and received the law. But God, for believers, has shown in our hearts, and we now see the glory of Christ with unveiled faces. So faith causes a seeing, it is a beholding of the glory of Christ, and therefore we are transformed, we discussed two weeks ago, by what we behold. In fact, Second Corinthians 3 says you're transformed into the same image. Powerful example. Then last week, once we figured out what faith is, where it comes from, we we asked the question, what do we do with this faith? Now that I have faith, what do I do? And we, we talked first, we must understand that this faith this causes us to be in a ministry. It brings us into a ministry. So all people who are believers in Christ have been given a ministry. And this ministry is from God's mercy. The source of our ministry is the mercy of God. And we spent a good bit on there. That can eliminate arrogance. It can eliminate fears and things that would hold us back. And also give us great confidence in our ministry. Then we talked about how we must know the truth. We must abide in the word. Dwell in the word. Live in the word. Soak up the word. Meditate on the word. Study the word. And all these things. This allows for us to not only know the truth. But then proclaim the correct truth, not a false gospel, not some false, watered-down, uneducated gospel, but the truth. We talk about the seriousness of knowing the gospel because false gospels produce false what? Converts. And then we said we must, at the end of the day, rest in God's sovereignty in our ministry. After all, salvation is dependent on God. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we save each other. God is the only one who can do this. And so we rest knowing that God will accomplish according to his will what he has set forth to accomplish. So this gives us a foundation. When I read those, I'm moved, I'm encouraged, I'm challenged, and I want to press on. But tonight, we deal with that exact subject, pressing on. We now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 7 in just a moment. We're going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. And we're going to discuss tonight how to persevere in our faith. How to persevere, how to endure, how, do you, how to continue on, how to continue to be strengthened and press forward regardless of obstacles and trials and temptations and struggles and sufferings and opponents and enemies. How do we persevere in our faith? Now that we have faith, now that we know what to do with our faith, we must know how we endure and how we persevere in our faith. The reality is, is that once we start living out our faith, we will indeed face continue to face temptation, and we will be persecuted for the sake of Christ, and we will endure suffering. And those who are in the faith will be kept. Those who are not of the faith will fall back. 
and there are eternal consequences at hand. So it is very crucial tonight as we continue thinking about our goal for the year that we discuss the topic of perseverance. How do we endure to the end? So before we dive into our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and discuss three points tonight from our text, I want to point us to a few passages, rather a few warnings that we find in Scripture about persevering in our faith. Because this is indeed of the utmost importance. So let's see what the rest of the Bible has to say about the importance of perseverance before we talk about how we have a faith that perseveres. First of all, and if you're, if you're a fast flipper, you can go with me. Otherwise, you can listen. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you, meaning the evil unbelieving heart is what leads to this, leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice this really quick. This means that it is, it is possible to be close to God but still have an evil unbelieving heart. This is saying that it, having an evil unbelieving heart can cause you to fall away from the living God. Well, we're already away. We're already separated because of sin. Hebrews 6, which we'll talk about in a little bit, warns us of how close you can actually get to God and still not be saved. Verse 13, therefore, because of this, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. What's today called? All right, today. What's tomorrow called when we get there? All right. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, one of the crucial ways that we cannot be deceived by sin is by encouraging one another. Isn't that awesome? Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to what? The end. If you flip to verse 18, it says this, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. James chapter 1, verse 25. We used this passage two weeks ago when we talked about faith being a beholding, right? Looking into this mirror. And James chapter 1, verse 25 says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not one that just looks into it and walks away, but one who perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. In other words, the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres is the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and is a doer and acts on what he sees. And James one twenty five says that this person will be blessed in his doing. And then we see one of the most vivid parables of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4... The beginning, Jesus gives a parable, and beginning in verse 14, he gives the explanation of this parable, saying this, lock into this, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves what? Unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So if you look at just three, these three passages, and there are more, we find a number of warnings that lead to people walking away and not persevering. Being deceived by sin. Here, here are the reasons, and what we just looked at, of reasons people don't persevere but fall back. Because they're deceived by sin. They're being disobedient to Christ. Unbelief. They are a hearer of the word who forgets. Satan steals the seed or veils the unbeliever, 2 Corinthians 4. Tribulation and persecution comes. Or the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things creep in and choke the word. Did you notice that at the very foundation of this parable in Mark 4 is the word? It's the word that is sown. And what happens is the word is choked out or just thrown away essentially because of desires and other things. Which is why we've been talking this whole year about the foundation of the Bible in all things. The way we think, the way we act, the way we move, the way we breathe, the way we proclaim, the way we live and see, it is indeed the word. And when we rebel and fall away and don't persevere, it is first and foremost an issue with how we see the word. How we act in accordance to the Word. How we respond to the Word of God. We should be very aware of these things as we look at our faith and as we look tonight at the topic of persevering. So let's go to our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to begin tonight in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars. Father, as we read your word, I just pray that you would help us not to doze off or be familiar with this text, but rather we would uh, once again read with new eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, breathe life into people because of these words. Anything that I say uh, is not God's word, but what I read here is. And this is what changes hearts. This is what produces faith. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use this time. The most important part of any message is the reading of your word. So I pray that you would use this time as we read your word in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. For we know, chapter 5, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. To be a people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God, we must be a people that persevere in our faith. So tonight, I want to give us three challenges of perseverance that we find in our text. Number one, focus on eternity or focus on the eternal. We find in this passage two possible discouragements that Paul warns us of, though there are more in the rest of Scripture. But we see two discouragements that he warns us of that would cause us to not necessarily persevere and endure in this passage. And that is, number one, of a decaying and fading body. And secondly, suffering. Paul compares our body to a jar of clay. Now here's what's amazing. Because in Paul's day, most homes had jars of clay. And these jars of clay were cheap, inexpensive, and easy to break. They were not like the metal vessels which could be repaired, or glass ones of that day which, if they broke, the glass could be melted down and reused. You see, once a clay jar was broken, it was discarded. And so he says that this is what our body is like. Our body is fragile, inexpensive, could break at any time and be discarded at any time. What's even more astonishing is that Paul says that we have a treasure inside this jar of clay. Now this is interesting because as cheap and fragile as a clay jar was, 
No one would put their treasures or goods inside of this jar. You wouldn't walk into an early church history home, go to steal their goods and find the cheapest clay jar and go look in to see the fine jewelry or where they're hiding the coins. It's, that's not where they're hiding it. Nobody puts their treasure in the clay jar. That would be foolish. Yet Christ has deposited himself the most costly and expensive treasure inside of us. We are carrying in this body of death the most priceless gift, which is Christ and his life. This is astonishing. Paul even tells us not to lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away. Now, wait a second. You'd think that if this clay jar is so disposable and could so easily be discarded, and if we are holding inside of us the gift of Christ, we should be concerned. About what's protecting it. But Paul says, though it's a clay jar and you're fading and can be discarded at any point, this outer body, don't worry. Be of good heart. Do not lose heart. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, where the treasure is, is being renewed day by day. The secret to understanding this more fully is in chapter 5. Look at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what Paul does is he now goes and moves from calling this body a jar of clay to a what? A tent. Now this gives us immediate insight. Because a tent is also a temporary place. So Paul is once again showing us that our bodies are temporary. But the tent was also the dwelling place of something in the Old Testament. What was it the dwelling place of? The Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God. And this is where the treasured gift of the Holy Spirit of God's presence was dwelling before a more permanent temple was built. The Spirit of God likewise lives inside us jars of clay and temporary tents. But though the tent was replaced and the clay jar breaks, the Spirit of God, which has given life to our souls, raises us up with Christ. Paul tells us this in verse 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, so I spoke, we also believe, and so also we speak. Why do we speak? Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. So what's awesome is we can be of good courage even though it seems like this is perishing, this is decaying because the treasure is where our actual life is and this cannot be destroyed. Now, for all of you under the age of 50 tonight, no offense, you 50 plusers, look, this is a young adult ministry. So, so many of you would, would look at this and be like, I'm in my prime. Not even worried about it. <laughs> what are you talking about? Chase wakes every morning and is like, oh, I ate a whole pizza last night, still got the six pack. That's what I'm talking about, right? So you, you think like, what does this have to do with people who aren't old? Why, why would I lose heart and be discouraged? But Paul is not talking just about not being discouraged the older you get. There's something very specific he's trying to get us to focus on here. And that is the eternal. 
This is not a passage about our body and not being discouraged with growing old. This is rather a passage that says in order to persevere, what Paul's about to show us next in the text, in order to persevere in suffering and tribulation, you must right now be understanding that what you are in right now is temporary, could break at any time. Because if you put all of your marbles, all of the pot in on this body, suffering's going to be difficult. Persecution's now going to be difficult, something you fight against. If you read on in verse 2 through 5, in chapter 5, we're going to get back to what I just said here in a second. Verse 2 says, for in this tent we groan. Can I get an amen, Mikey? Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit inside of us is the treasure, and this treasure is the guarantee that we will be further clothed. Our clay jar and tent will be replaced with something permanent and glorious. Ephesians 1 tells us this, that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And this is why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16, here in 2 Corinthians, not to lose heart. It's why he's telling us here in chapter 5, verse 6, to always be of good courage. Because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, verse 6, verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So we're of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words... Our longing is not to cling to this life, but the next. And now here we are a couple weeks away, probably from Charlotte being born or sooner. And it's the same type of thing, like, everybody be okay. You know, we're walking out of the garage tonight, and it's pitch black dark. And she's like, be careful. She already went down the stairs. I'm like, me, be careful. You don't fall. You know what I mean? You know, anytime we're walking in the bathroom, the, 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 the floor is wet. Be careful. Because I have this mentality of, I don't want anything to happen. Right? And that's, that's normal. And I'm not saying be foolish, but what I'm saying is this reveals something about us. Because some people are like, I want to go to heaven, just not yet. Because I want to experience the fullness of this earth as if this is better. And Paul here in verse 7 is saying, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's this mentality where today we don't see things eternally. And we don't long for eternity. We have this clinging to the temporary. And that's the point that Paul is showing us here. Paul is showing us not to focus on the body, which is fading, but on the spirit, which is being renewed and prepared for something much more permanent. Look, he already tried to show us this in chapter 3 and 4. He's just now giving us a more vivid image. This is why reading the whole book of something is so important. And I say that knowing that we're only going to be going through four chapters in our study of 2 Corinthians. But the whole letter brings more and more light onto different topics. Because in chapter 3 and 4, Paul showed us, remember, Moses' face was radiant with the glory that was fading and produced death. Paul tells us to look to the Spirit, which gives life, is an eternal glory. Now, here we are in chapter 4 and 5, and Paul is making this even more real for us today. Because our body is a temporary glory, which produces death. Just like Moses in the law. So we must by faith look to Christ, cling to the Spirit, longing for the day when we will receive eternal life with new bodies and a glory that never fades. It all connects. In order to persevere and to not grow weary or discouraged, we must remember that our hope, 
and our strength are not found in these jars of clay, these tents, this temporary glory, or this life that we so love and are privileged to have in America today, but rather in the Spirit who gives life. It is in the treasure inside of us in eternity which is awaiting us. We are indeed sojourners on this earth. We have a specific purpose and ministry that God has called us to complete. So do not long to hold on to that which is fading. That's what Paul was telling the Jews. Don't cling to the law which is fading. Now we sing it to you, you Gentiles. Don't cling to your life which is fading. Rather long for what is to come. Make eternity the aim of your ministry. And if you don't have an eternal mindset, you will not persevere. Then in the midst of what we're going to talk about next, you will crumble and fall away. So number one, focus on eternity. Focus on the eternal. Number two, understand suffering. And you cannot understand suffering without what we just talked about, which is why Paul speaks the way he does. One of the reasons that we can be so discouraged in our jars of clay, in our tents, and in our faith is because of Suffering. This is why this is a relevant conversation for not just old people whose bodies are hurting them. This is why this is a relevant conversation for a young adult ministry, right? We've already discussed numerous times all that the Bible has to say about suffering. And it's promised to those who bear the name of Jesus. We looked at Mark 4 at the beginning tonight and how it showed us that suffering is one of the reasons that people receive the word of truth and then walk away. And this is why Jesus warns that those who endure to the end will be saved. We saw as we looked throughout history in the first eight weeks how many men and women persevered under persecution and how many men and women did not. Suffering is something that people of faith will indeed endure because it is not them who are enduring it, but the treasure inside of them, Christ who lives inside of them. Christ himself endured suffering and persecution. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, we should also, in the context of perseverance, remind ourselves here that Jesus loses none whom the Father gives him. None. We're not talking about losing salvation. We cannot lose our salvation because we aren't the ones who earned it or bought it. Those who walk away from the Lord are those who were false converts. I mentioned earlier that Hebrews 6 shows us just how close people can be to the faith, even tasting it and sharing in the joys of it, yet walk away. We said last week this is because false teaching produces false converts. And I bring this up here because one of the biggest schemes and false teachings and preaching today is that suffering is not part of the gospel. Suffering isn't part of the Christian life. But that's foolishness. That is a gospel that can be preached in 10% of the world. And it is a gospel that if it were preached in Paul's day would have got you stoned. Paul says in chapter 4 verse 8 through 12 of 2 Corinthians, here our text. He says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Here you go. This is encouraging. All you jars of clay at 20 years old. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. 
Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, he must increase, John says, I must decrease. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's why Jesus says, uh, uh, take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. The way you live and overcome these sufferings and walk in the newness of life is by dying to yourself so that the life of Christ can be shining through in you. This is why Paul says in verse 12, death is at work in us, but life in you. And he's saying it from the apostle to the body standpoint, but this is also true in the believer standpoint. Paul understood suffering and its purpose in the gospel, which is why he was able to say in verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now here's, here's what's tough. Here's what's tough. Austin, if tonight you guys go home and you're faced at the Dover Air Force Base with a radical religious group, fill in the blank, whoever they are, who hates Christianity, they put a gun to your wife's head and they say, deny Christ or I'll kill you. She does not deny Christ. She stands firm and she gets shot. What would we do? We would mourn. Obviously, there'd be anger. There'd be difficulty. These are all relevant and good emotions. They're not necessarily sinful in themselves. But what if immediately after that happened, I walked up to you and I said, literally, I'm there. 30 seconds later, I look at Sarah and I say, oh, it's okay, Austin. This light momentary affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. What do you think he would do to me? Maybe punch me in the face. Like, probably not the time to say that, David. Right? Why? Because... The emotion of the moment is overwhelming. Here's what's sad, and I'm not belittling. By the way, I would hope that someone would be more tactful with me if that happened to my wife within 30 seconds, right? But it's true. And sometimes we have this gospel that is constantly preached that allows for us in these moments to crumble and not rejoice that God might be doing something far beyond what we can understand because we're clinging to temporary and not focusing on the eternity. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't mourn when horrible things happen or just rejoice for rejoicing's sake when it happens, but we should have a biblical understanding of suffering, understanding that these things could happen at any moment. And though you may not want to smile at that moment, the truth in our heart should say, this affliction is light and momentary. We should be able to understand that and believe that. The theology of suffering has to run deep into our bones if we're going to endure and persevere. If that moment happens, are we prepared for those types of things? Are we going to persevere and endure in the wildest of sufferings? We will see in a couple weeks... An even deeper revealing of what Paul and his companions endured in chapter 6. But for the sake of tonight, we're going to look more at a biblical way of understanding suffering, why it's crucial to perseverance. People avoid suffering, don't they? People avoid persecution, don't they? And we avoid it naturally because it hurts us. Mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, obviously, spiritually. Our jars of clay, our tents, are being harmed. And when we cling to the temporary, and the temporary is hurt, we go into defense mode. 
This is precisely seen in mother bears. I don't mean bears. I mean human mothers who act like mother bears, right? I can just imagine somebody going up to Zach and picking a fight when Zach was in third grade and Beth coming in ready to throw down with whoever thinks that they're going to rock on with Zach. My mom had this mama bear mentality, this defense mode. We naturally respond to suffering and persecution with a defense mentality. And not only that, but we do whatever is necessary to protect that which has been harmed and prevent it from ever being harmed again. This right here is a critical piece to what is wrong with our approach to suffering. Not only do we dislike it, but we try at all costs to prevent it. Now, I'm not advocating for Christian masochism or deriving pleasure or attention from our own pain or humiliation. That is not what I am talking about right here. Rather, I am saying that God has ordained that the gospel would be spread and that he would receive glory through the suffering of his son for our sin and through the suffering of the saints for his glory. Do you see this? I'll say this again. He has ordained that the gospel would be spread And he would receive glory by the suffering of his son for our sin and the suffering of his saints for his glory. Our earthly jars of clay and tents are able to be glorified in eternity through the suffering of the son. Because Jesus died and he suffered, we are able to have life and we will be glorified. But the glory of God is also revealed and proclaimed through the joyful suffering of his saints who cling to the eternal and not the jars of clay. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14. He says, Beloved brothers, sisters, Christians, believers, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it, it shouldn't be strange, Austin, if Sarah dies tonight from a radical religious group who hates Christianity. And Peter goes, Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen, when we oppose and prevent suffering, we are showing that we cling to the glory that fades and we are then screaming to the world that this is our greatest glory. This, my life here on earth, My body, all I have, this is my greatest glory. And when we go into defense mode, don't touch all of this at radical expenses, at the cost of the gospel as well, we are showing this is the most precious glory there is. But when we look at at, uh, suffering and we realize that it is light and temporary, when we cling to Christ, we are screaming to the world, This tent and jar of clay that I am in is fading, and the glory of man is fading, and this world is fading. I have a treasure inside that cannot be destroyed. I am clinging to the far greater glory. Now let me ask you a question. Which one of those two scenarios is a better proclamation of the gospel? Let me ask you a question. Which one of those scenarios is a greater portrayal of God's glory? Suffering. Jesus tells us this in Luke 21. He shows... His disciples, something amazing about the purposes of suffering. As he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem about to be destroyed while they're still alive in this generation, he says, this is what's going to happen, disciples. Nation will rise against nation. 
Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be great earthquakes, various places. There'll be famines and pestilences. There's going to be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of these horrible things, what's going to happen is they're going to lay their hands on you and they're going to persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then, and then Jesus says to the disciples this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. In other words, God was sovereign in these acts of suffering specifically so that his disciples would be in a place where God would give them an opportunity to proclaim Christ. And they did, and they died for it. And so Jesus says in verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds. Not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth in wisdom. And none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You want to know why? They weren't before the adversaries going, No! They were clinging to an, a clay jar or an earthly tent. He goes further. Jesus says, You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they'll put to death. You will be hated by all, he says it again, for my name's sake. And then Jesus says this, not a hair of your head will perish. (laughs) He just said you're going to die. Many of you will die for this. Not a hair of your head will perish. And then he says this in the context of our evening tonight. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. In other words, in losing your life for my sake, you're actually gaining it. Powerful. We have to remind ourselves again, this is not about us. God is not interested in making you the center of the universe. Paul tells us this affliction and suffering is light and temporary. Light and temporary. And then he says this, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our suffering is preparing us for a glory that surpasses our clay jars and tents. Surpasses the law. And it's eternal, not temporary. It's beyond any comparison of this world. Therefore, do not cling to the glory that is fading and produces death. Rather, cling people to the eternal weight of glory and marvel at how God uses suffering to sanctify us and to glorify His Son. When we become proclaimers of the gospel and ambassadors for Christ and ministers of reconciliation, you can be sure that you'll suffer for Jesus' sake. Do not be surprised at this. Do not have a cheap theology of suffering. And do not cling to your clay. Rather, persevere, knowing what God has in store for all those who endure to the end. So to persevere in your faith, number one, you must focus on eternity, eternal things. Number two, understand suffering. And number three, as we close, the last point tonight, aim to please God. God. This one's the kicker to me. And here's why. What was number one? We must what? Focus on eternity. What was number two? Understand suffering. This is the kicker. Ain't it please God? Because number one, focus on eternity. And number two, understand suffering. It's possible to do when you're still the center of your universe. It's possible to do those things still being man-centered. It is possible to focus on the eternal and endure suffering simply because you know that you will have a great reward. 
But Paul takes us one step further and says to not do all this so that we may be pleased first and foremost, but rather to please God. Our aim in 1 and 2 is to please God, not to please ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. Okay, whoa. There are two things here. So let's start with number one. If we are at home, make it our aim to please God. If we are at home, make it our aim to please God. Well, what is home? Well, Paul says in verse 6, the context of home here is when we are in the body. So in our passage today, the question now is, how do we please God in our bodies, which are temporary in the midst of suffering? How do I aim to please God in my body, which is fading, especially in the midst of suffering? We'll look at chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says in regards to suffering and ministry that this is all for your sake. Now, who's the your here? It's not God. He's saying it's all for your sake. Those who are brothers, those who are chosen, those who will be saved. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, you may look at this verse and say, um, Dave, you're, you're saying that this point is aimed to please God. But this verse says that Paul is doing it all for their sake. The believers, the elect, those will be saved, not God. You might actually even pause here and then see a reason because of this verse to be pragmatic in our approach of ministry. This is why we should be all things to all people so that we might win some. This is why we should be seeker sensitive. This is why we should create ministry specifically to attract the lost. First and foremost, as the aim and goal. But read on. Because what we've been arguing for weeks is that the only way to truly be people-centered in a biblical way is to first and foremost be God-centered. Paul says that when we suffer for your sake, grace, which comes from God, is extending to more and more people. In other words, God is being proclaimed louder than without suffering, with suffering. And what is happening as a result? Thanksgiving is increasing. But who's the Thanksgiving increasing to? Paul? Paul's disciples? No. Thanksgiving is increasing towards God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we cannot read chapter 4, verse 15 chronologically in importance. Meaning this, the most important part of this verse is not for your sake. Paul is not saying that if you are people-centered, grace will extend to more people, and then thanksgiving will increase, and then God will be glorified. And this is the approach we take in ministry. I want to be God-centered, which is why I'm being people-centered. Ministries and churches and people and their personal lives will do this. I want to do whatever is necessary for the sake of the people, so that they'll receive grace, so that they'll thank God, and then God will be glorified. But that's not what Paul is saying in this verse, though it's read in that order. Paul is rather showing us that the motive of these things is to bring glory to God. And by having a desire to glorify God, we are then actually able to minister for the sake of others. In other words, the result of bringing glory to God cannot be the result if it first starts with the people. It has to first start with God. This is what makes room for God's grace and increased thanksgiving. 
In other words, if God's glory is the aim, we must first and foremost be God-centered. And so when Paul says, I'm doing this for your sake, he's only able to do this for their sake because God is his life. God is his treasure. God is his aim. Chapter 5, verse 9. When we are at home, we make it our aim to please God. So verse 9 is not in contradiction with chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, the motive is God's glory. We aim to please God while we are at home in the body through enduring suffering for the glory of God, which extends God's grace and increases thanksgiving. I want to read this one more time. Say hello. hello. We aim to please God while we are at home in this jar of clay by enduring suffering for the glory of God with great joy, which extends God's grace and increases thanksgiving. This is how we persevere for God's glory. But, Paul says one more thing in chapter 5, verse 9. And this is the point I'm actually trying to make with this final point tonight. Because I said at the beginning of point 3, that we can still be man-centered in our approach to focusing on the eternal and understanding suffering, right? I said it is still possible to do number one and two with you being the center focus. What I mean is this. Muslims focus on eternity and understand suffering in their religion. You do know that, right? Muslims focus on the eternal and they understand suffering. Now, they are wildly deceived. So what's the difference? Because there is one, and Paul shows us. Paul says whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now listen, we've already discussed what home is, but Paul says home or away. So what is away? Well, verse 7 shows it. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. He uses the word home for both in our body and with the Lord. And here he's saying whether we're home or away, whether we're in our body or away with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. This is the key. Do not miss this. We make it our aim to please God here in our body in such a way that it will be our aim to please Him when we are at home with Him in eternity. In other words, the Muslim focuses on the eternal and endures suffering so that eternity can be all about them. But Paul says, we must make it our aim to please God here in the body focusing on the eternal and understanding suffering in such a way that's much different than the Muslim, in such a way that eternity will not be all about us, but will be all about God. Therefore, we make it our aim to please God whether we are home or away. And the key to pleasing God while we are at home in the body is by focusing on God when we will be away. We are looking Paul says, to an eternal weight of glory. And he says that this is beyond all comparison. In other words, the glory that we are longing for in eternity cannot be about us. Because then it wouldn't be beyond all comparison. There's only one thing that is beyond all comparison. Whom? God! He's the only uncomparable thing in the universe. The only uncomparable being. So when Paul says to focus that there is an eternal weight of glory 
that we're being prepared for, this eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison can only be God. And if it's an eternal weight, that means it's in eternity. So aiming to please God in eternity means that eternity is all about God. Eternity is all about God. We see this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. John shows us this in his vision. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Psalm 26, verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Revelation 21 shows us this is an eternity. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then verse 10 through 12, it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor there shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. If eternity was about anything but God, you would be an idolater. God will not share his glory. But one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, says it best when he says that God's desire to be glorified and our desire to be satisfied are not at odds. For God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And He never actually says the flip, but it's true. We are most satisfied in God when God is most glorified in us. For it is in the glory of God that we find our true satisfaction and joy. Think about how much eternity would lack joy and fulfillment if it were about us. Can you imagine how miserable that would be? Because, by the way, you do realize that if eternity was about us, eternity would be about Tyler and Gavin, and Melissa, and Nick, and Vic, and Cassie, and all the other millions of people that will be the multitudes of people. So, so wait a second. Think about how ludicrous this is. What, is eternity going to be about everybody but God? Doesn't make any sense. It's about God. Eternity would lack joy if it were about us. How terrible a place if God was not there or it wasn't about God. Psalm 1611, the psalmist tells us, it is here that we find the fullness of our joy. But perhaps the best picture of this is found in Revelation chapter 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth as we make it our aim to please God at home or away. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And talk about being satisfied in the glory of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Light, momentary affliction. Death shall be no more. Light, momentary affliction. Neither shall there be mourning. Light, momentary affliction. Nor crying. Light, momentary affliction. Nor pain anymore. Light, momentary affliction. Which is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. For the former things have passed away. All former glories are gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. The one who endures gets that inheritance inheritance. The one who perseveres to the end. And then he says, I will be his God. He will be my son. If we want to be transformed and transform this world, we must endure. We must focus on the eternal and understand suffering and aim to please God here in our bodies in such a way that we know it will be our aim to please him for all of eternity. Now before I end with a passage of scripture, I want to address something. Because anytime you talk about perseverance, there are those who may look at their own life and see sin and say, look Dave, I believe the Bible is the word of God, sufficient for all things. I believe it's regeneration, the Holy Spirit. Everything we've been talking about, I believe. But how do you know? How do I know if I'm saved? This is one of the most consistent and constant questions you find in churches and in ministries. How do I know? Right? Because I know believers still fall into sin, but there's all these warnings about people who are persisting in sin and staying in sin. Like, how do I know if I'm, if I'm saved or not? And it's especially difficult when people find themselves in phases or seasons of their life where they're continually being rebellious or living or indulging in sin, or have these desires, or maybe have prayed for years to be rid of some specific sin or some specific addiction. And you ask yourself, am I enduring? Am I persevering? And there's a struggle. Am I saved? There's two things I want to say about that. Number one is, you are not, I don't think, going to find the answer that you're truly desiring there. Because I don't believe you find in Scripture any specific thing that says, if this fruit is produced, then you know. If you get this feeling, then you know. Rather, what you find is a constant warning filled with encouragement and reminding of the gospel to persevere and run with endurance to the end, keeping your eyes on Christ. So for all the people who say, how do I know if I'm saved? The answer is, Run after Christ and don't stop. Don't end. 
And what happens is Satan can come in the midst of this and cause questions and doubts and fears, which is why it's so important to preach the gospel to yourself every single day that you're not saved because you were good enough. You're saved in spite of your sin because of the great mercy and grace and life of Christ, and he's given you life now in him. Therefore, stop focusing so much on the season and the sin you can't get a hold of and figure out and run after Christ. Stop asking yourself, am I saved, am I not? Don't live in fear and run after Christ. Now, here's what's powerful. And again, John Piper gives the best illustration, in my opinion, of this. He warns those who would be wondering, am I living in constant sin? Am I rebelling? Am I persevering? Am I enduring? Am I not? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? He says, do not be like the buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice. And he's flying and he sees a piece of ice, something that's desirable that he wants to indulge in. He sees down the way there is an inevitable ending to this river, this icy cold river, and that is a massive waterfall. There is danger ahead. But he looks, he knows he has time, so he wants to go and indulge in the carcass, though he knows it is dangerous. The buzzard lands begins to eat and indulge, every now and then looking up. He knows it is dangerous because the falls are just ahead. But he looks at his wings and says to himself, I can fly to safety in an instant. So he's not worried. There's time. He goes on eating and indulging. And just before the ice is about to go over the falls... He begins to spread his wings to fly away from danger. But his claws at this point are frozen in the ice and there is no escape. I almost get chills thinking about that. We're living in a jar of clay. That can be shattered to pieces at any moment. This is why we must lay aside every weight, the author of Hebrews says, and lay aside the sin which clings so closely. And we must run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking not to the carcass, looking to Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the challenge. That is the answer to those who would say, how do I know? Get off the ice. That's how you know. Right after Christ. And here's what's awesome. You can't do it. But those who are in Christ will persevere and will endure in their faith to the end because it is not them, the jar of clay, but it's the treasure. It is Christ, the Spirit of God, who is dwelling inside of them. Paul says, it is no longer I who live in Galatians 2, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He also said in Philippians chapter 1, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What did Paul say in our text? In the first verse of our text tonight, chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Why? Why is the treasure inside of something that can so easily be discarded and break and that is temporary? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show 
that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the first verse. The reason you're built so weak is so that God is glorified in you. So that you will be utterly dependent on Christ for all things. We must persevere in our faith. We must do so by focusing on the eternal, by having a correct biblical understanding of suffering, aiming to please God here, and understand that eternity will be about Him. And God will do this through Christ, by the Spirit of God, for all those who have been born again. So I want to close by reading Jude, verse 17 through 24. And while I do this, when I, when I read this, I want us to then reflect on tonight in prayer. The band's going to come up, and we're going to close, not with small groups tonight, but we're going to close in a song, just of response to the word. So after we read this, I want you guys to bow your heads and pray and just plead with the Lord based on however he's spoken to your heart tonight, and we'll close in a song, okay? Jude, verse 17. You must remember, beloved, Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid, empty, without the Spirit. But you, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you believers, you saved people living in faith, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you bow your heads and you pray.